This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. We welcome everyone to the program. My name is J. Paul Newman. My co-hosts are Rutherford County District Attorney General Jennings Jones and Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. We appreciate WGNS providing the airtime. And we thank our producer, Scott Walker. Most of all, we thank you for listening. This is the 105th broadcast of this special edition of the Action Line on your good neighbor station, WGNS. Today, in our Inside the Court segment, District Attorney General Jennings Jones will tell you about recent and upcoming grand jury, general sessions, and circuit court activity. In our What's the Law segment, Assistant District Attorney General Trevor Lynch will discuss an area of the law that you will find to be both interesting and educational. In our final segment of the broadcast, we will discuss an area of great public interest. It is the topic of missing persons. With us today to discuss missing persons will be Detective Lieutenant James Abbott of the Murfreesboro Police Department. Lieutenant Abbott and I will discuss the topic of missing persons from the personal perspective, the investigative perspective, and the legal perspective. If you want to stay informed about the criminal justice system in your community, you will want to stay tuned to WGNS. We will begin the broadcast after you listen to these important messages. Hi, this is Amanda from Animal City, inviting your family to come do business with my family. It's important to protect your pets from fleas and ticks, so we keep a full line of products to help you do that. Animal City is Murfreesboro's longest running and only family operated pet store. At Animal City, you'll find a full line of pets and pet products, including freshwater and saltwater fish, birds, reptiles, small animals, and much more. Come see us at Animal City, 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. This is Inside the Courts. A look at this month's trials, pleas, and grand jury action. Inside the Courts is presented as a courtesy of the Rutherford County Clerk's Office. Good morning, everyone. This is your District Attorney, Jennings Jones, and in this segment, I will be your tour guide as I take you inside the courts. We begin this segment by stating that none of the defendants named in upcoming trials or hearings have been convicted, and, of course, they are presumed by our law to be innocent. With that as a prelude, we will now go inside the courts. On April 6th of this year, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to an apartment complex on Old Las Casas Road, where the body of Mr. Ryan Walcott was found lying on the floor of his apartment. Mr. Walcott had been beaten and stabbed to death. Detective Julie Cox with the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as the lead investigator. Alistair Jennings, one of Mr. Walcott's roommates, has been developed as a suspect in Mr. Walcott's death. 
Through the course of her investigation, Detective Cox discovered both physical evidence and statements from witnesses that connect Mr. Jennings to the murder of Ryan Walcott. As a result, Mr. Jennings has been charged with first-degree murder. This matter is currently set in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County, with the next court date scheduled for August the 3rd of this year. The defendant is represented by counsel Ms. Barbara Penland Lefevers, while the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On September the 27th of 2021, deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department responded to a residence on Bivens Hill Road in reference to a shooting. Once on scene, deputies located Miss Tony Odom, who had suffered a gunshot wound. Miss Odom later died from her injuries. Detective Ty Downing with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department has been assigned as the lead investigator in this case. After interviewing witnesses and reviewing physical evidence found at the scene, Erwin Odom, the victim's husband, was identified as a suspect. At the conclusion of the investigation, Mr. Odom was charged with first-degree murder. Mr. Odom is represented by Murfreesboro attorney Josh Crane, while the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Sarah Davis. This matter is set in the General Sessions Court pending completion of a mental health evaluation. On February 12th of this year, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a parking lot on Middle Tennessee Boulevard in response to a shooting. Upon arrival, officers discovered at least five individuals had been struck by gunfire. Two individuals had been shot multiple times, including Mr. Brandon Anderson, who later died from his injuries. Detective Cody Thomas has been assigned as lead investigator. Upon conclusion of his investigation, Detective Jacob Fountain charged Mr. Jamar Marks with first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, three counts of aggravated assault, employing a firearm during the commission of a dangerous felony, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and reckless endangerment with a deadly weapon. Mr. Marks was scheduled to appear before the General Sessions Court in Rutherford County yesterday for a preliminary hearing, but upon agreement of the parties, the case was bound over to the Rutherford County Grand Jury. Mr. Marks is represented by counsel, Mr. Josh Crane, while the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On December 4th of 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department were dispatched to an apartment complex on North Rutherford Boulevard in reference to a shooting that resulted in the death of Mr. Montavious Jones. Mr. Jones was left lying in the apartment parking lot where he was later found. Murfreesboro Detective Chris Pate was assigned as lead investigator. After the shooting, Mr. Mikhail Boyd was located at St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital seeking treatment for a gunshot wound. Video surveillance footage showed Mr. Boyd being brought to the hospital by Tevin Campbell and Paul Turner. After a lengthy investigation that included interviewing witnesses, obtaining cell phone records, social media records, and expert witness reports, Detective Pate charged Mr. Boyd, Mr. Campbell, and Mr. Turner, along with Martavius Guy, with first-degree murder, attempted especially aggravated robbery, conspiracy to commit aggravated robbery, and employing a firearm during the commission of a dangerous felony. Mr. Guy's girlfriend, Tabricia Lattimore, has been charged with conspiracy, aggravated robbery, and facilitation to attempted especially aggravated robbery. All defendants are represented by counsel. Mr. Boyd is represented by Mr. Art Quinn. Mr. Turner is represented by Casey Little. Mr. Guy is represented by Ben Powers. Miss Lattimore is represented by Mr. Jeffrey Jackson. And Mr. Campbell is represented by Mr. Michael Offinger. The state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. 
This matter is set for a preliminary hearing on August the 8th of this year in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County. On September 8th of 2019, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a shooting on Journey Drive. Officers discovered Marquis Turner, who had been shot on the sidewalk after leaving an event at the Elks Lodge. Mr. Turner later died from his injuries. Detective Cody Thomas of the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as the lead investigator and has developed Khalil Smith as a suspect in this case. Upon conclusion of his investigation, Mr. Smith was charged with second-degree murder in possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Khalil Smith is presently incarcerated at the Rutherford County Adult Detention Center and is represented by counsel Mr. Michael Offinger. The state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. A preliminary hearing was held on April 6th of this year, and the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County found probable cause to believe that Mr. Smith committed the charged crimes. This case is now awaiting presentment to a Rutherford County grand jury. On April 24th of last year, officers on patrol heard shots fired and responded to 1621 Middle Tennessee Boulevard, where they found Mr. Shakur Ali, who had been shot and later died from his injuries. Apollo Cantrell was identified as the shooter and fled the state. Detective Richard Presley of the Murfreesboro Police Department has been assigned as lead investigator. Through cooperation with the state of Iowa, Mr. Cantrell was apprehended and is presently incarcerated at the Rutherford County Adult Detention Center on charges of second-degree murder and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He is represented by Murfreesboro attorney Will Fraley. A preliminary hearing was held in this matter on February 7th of this year, and the General Sessions Court found probable cause to bind the case over to the Rutherford County Grand Jury. On February 6th of last year, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a shooting resulting in the death of 21-year-old Giovanni Gillis at a residence on Ewing Boulevard. Detective Cody Thomas has been assigned as lead investigator. Upon conclusion of Detective Thomas's investigation, Larry Johnson II has been charged with first-degree murder. Mr. Johnson is represented by counsel Mr. Michael Flanagan, and the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. Following a preliminary hearing in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County on May 5th of 2021, the case was bound over to the Rutherford County Grand Jury. On June the 27th of 2018, Officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a shooting on Old Las Casas Pike. Upon arrival, officers located Dylan Biddle Jr., who had sustained multiple gunshot wounds. Mr. Biddle later died from his injuries. Officers were also contacted about an unknown male that had been shot and was attempting to get into vehicles at the Reeves Rogers Elementary School. That male was later identified as Albert Mustafa. Murfreesboro Police Detective Doug Arrington was assigned as the lead investigator on this case. Multiple witnesses were interviewed and evidence on scene was collected. Upon conclusion of the investigation, it was determined that Mr. Mustafa and Devante James went to a residence on Old Las Casas with the intent to commit a robbery. Mr. Biddle was a guest at that residence. Mr. Mustafa and Mr. James entered into the residence and attempted to rob Mr. Biddle. During the course of the attempted robbery, Mr. Biddle was shot and killed. Mr. Biddle was, however, able to return fire, and Mr. Mustafa sustained a gunshot wound as a result. 
Mr. Mustafa and Mr. James were charged with first-degree murder, felony murder, aggravated robbery, employing a weapon during the commission of a dangerous felony, and conspiracy to commit the same. Mr. Mustafa is represented by Mr. Thomas Parkinson, while Mr. James is represented by Mr. Russell Perkins. The state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. The next court date for both of these defendants has been set for July 6th of this year. On October the 24th of 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a shooting that occurred at the intersection of North Tennessee Boulevard and Stonewall Boulevard. Officers discovered the body of Mr. Blake Bolton, who was the victim of two gunshot wounds. Murfreesboro Police Department Detective Albert Miles was assigned as lead investigator. Detective Miles has charged Mr. Gilliam with the first-degree murder of Mr. Bolton. Following a preliminary hearing on March 23, 2021, the case was bound over to the grand jury. Mr. Gilliam remains in the custody of the Rutherford County Adult Detention Center. A Rutherford County grand jury indicted Mr. Gilliam for first-degree murder, especially aggravated robbery, burglary to an automobile, possession of meth with the intent to distribute, employment of a weapon during the commission of a dangerous felony, and conspiracy to commit the above. Mr. Gilliam is represented by counsel Mr. Jeff Burton, while the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. The next scheduled court date in this case is July 21st of this year. On April the 9th of 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a residence on North Rutherford Boulevard in response to a shooting resulting in the death of Mr. Stephen Lopez Jr. Lead investigator Detective Richard Presley has charged Mr. James Evans III with second-degree murder of Mr. Lopez Jr. Mr. Evans waived his right to a preliminary hearing and bound his case over to the grand jury. On March of 2021, a grand jury returned a true bill against Mr. Evans. Mr. Evans is represented by counsel John Mitchell III, and the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. This case is next set to appear in court on July 21st of this year. On June 22nd of 2019, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a shooting on Eagle Street, resulting in the death of Mr. Diore Sunders. Detective Jacob Fountain was assigned as the lead investigator. Through interviews of witnesses and video surveillance footage, Detective Fountain identified Delarius Crawford and Quandre Knowles as suspects. Physical evidence established two different firearms had been used to kill Mr. Sunders. Eyewitnesses confirmed that Mr. Crawford and Mr. Knowles both shot Mr. Sunders. Detective Fountain charged both suspects with first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, employing a firearm during the commission of a felony, and possession of a handgun by a convicted felon. Mr. Crawford is represented by Mr. David Clark, while Mr. Knowles is represented by Mr. Tillman Payne. The state is again represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. This matter is currently set for trial starting August the 22nd of this year. On October the 8th of 2019, officers with the Laverne Police Department responded to a residence on Center Street in response to a shooting resulting in the death of a 17-year-old male. The juvenile had been shot multiple times. Laverne Police Department Detective Steve Krotz has been assigned as the lead investigator in this case. Upon interviewing witnesses, Detective Krotz developed Mr. Deontay Moore as a suspect. Cell phone records placed Mr. Moore in the area of the shooting and in communication with the juvenile victim the night of the shooting. On October 16th of 2019, Mr. Moore was found hiding in a closet at an apartment in Lebanon, Tennessee. Mr. Moore was charged with first-degree murder. 
A preliminary hearing was held on February the 11th of 2020 in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County. In March of 2021, a Rutherford County grand jury indicted Mr. Moore for first-degree murder, especially aggravated robbery, and use of a firearm during the commission of a dangerous felony. This matter is currently scheduled for trial to begin September the 26th of this year. The defendant is represented by counsel, Ms. Courtney Teasley, while the state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On the 26th of June, 2019, deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department responded to a residence on Walnut Grove Road. Mr. Terry Barber was found deceased on the floor with his hands and feet bound together. Lead investigator Detective Steve Brown has charged three individuals, Devin Gailey, Brent Ross, and Vernice Ferrer, with first-degree murder, especially aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, and fraudulent use of a debit card. Following a preliminary hearing in the General Sessions Court, the cases were bound over to the grand jury. In June of 2020, a grand jury returned a true bill against all three defendants. Devin Gailey is represented by counsel Mr. Luke Evans. And on January the 20th of this year, Mr. Gailey entered a plea of guilty to felony murder and especially aggravated kidnapping and received a life sentence with the possibility of parole and a concurrent 25-year sentence to serve. On March 24th of 2022, Ms. Vernice Fair was found guilty by a jury of her peers of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Ms. Fair awaits sentencing for additional convictions on, on, <clears throat> in connection with the aggravated robbery, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated burglary of Mr. Barber on July 6th of 2022. Brent Ross is the remaining defendant and is represented by counsel Mr. Michael Jones. A trial is scheduled for the dates of January 23rd through the 25th of next year. I will be representing the state in this matter, assisted by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. On July 26th of 2020, deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department responded to the residence of Mr. Eric Bixler. Upon arrival, deputies found the body of Mr. Bixler, deceased as the result of multiple stab wounds. A female companion of Mr. Bixler's advised deputies two armed men had attacked Mr. Bixler and held her at gunpoint while they searched the premises. The female heard Mr. Bixler being tortured by his assailants. Detective Ty Downing with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department was assigned as lead investigator. Following Detective Downing's investigation, Mr. Christopher White and Mr. Christopher Robinson, both from Kentucky, were charged with first-degree murder, especially aggravated kidnapping, especially aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, use of a firearm during the commission of a dangerous felony, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and tampering with evidence. After a preliminary hearing in the General Sessions Court, the cases were bound over to the grand jury, and in March of 2021, a true bill was returned against both. Mr. White is represented by counsel, Mr. Paul Bruno, and Mr. Robinson is represented by Rob McKinney and Brian Lewis. The state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. This matter is set for trial to begin May the 8th of next year. And that will conclude today's look inside the courts. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Family Restaurants. Did you know that Demas's now can cater events? We can ship most of our pastas and we can deliver it to your door. If you're interested in our catering, you can go to demasesrestaurants.com and click on the menus on catering to see what options we have available for your next event. Demas's Family Restaurants, 
go to demasesrestaurants.com. Demas's Family Restaurants on 1115 Northwest Broad Street. What's the law? Time now for an examination of the laws of Tennessee. This is not intended to be legal advice and is being presented solely for the informational benefit of our listening audience. You should always consult with an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. Good morning, listeners. Today I want to take this opportunity to talk to you about Tennessee's self-defense laws. I want to start by saying that this is just an overview of our self-defense laws. To fully discuss the entirety of the laws would probably require a proper three-month course. Having said that, we all have the right to defend ourselves from an unlawful attack by another. But when and to what extent? Tennessee Code Annotated 3911-611 sets that out for us. Section B1 states, A person who is not engaged in conduct that would constitute a felony or a Class A misdemeanor and is in a place where the person has a right to be has no duty to retreat before threatening or using force against another person when and to the degree the person reasonably believes the force is immediately necessary to protect against the other's use or attempted use of unlawful force. So what does that mean? Well, first and foremost, it must be determined if there is a duty to retreat. Think about flight or fight. If a person is engaged in a felony or a Class A misdemeanor, then they would have a duty to retreat before they would be justified in using force against another. So if I'm committing a crime at the time someone attacks me, I may very well be required by law to try and run away before I would be justified in standing and fighting. However, even if I am engaged in a crime, I may still have the right to defend myself against unlawful force. If I'm unable to retreat safely, I then would be justified in using force to defend myself. Understand that if the force being used against me is lawful, then I would not have the right to defend against it. How much force can be used? Section B1 states, to the degree the person reasonably believes the force is immediately necessary to protect against the other's use or attempted use of unlawful force. This section only contemplates non-lethal force, meaning if someone punches me, I would not be justified in taking out a firearm and shooting them. Also, the degree of force used to protect oneself must be reasonably believed to be immediately necessary. If someone tells me, the next time I see you, I'm going to knock you out, the law would not support me attacking that person right then and there. It is not intended to allow preemptive strikes. Section B2 addresses lethal force. A person who is not engaged in conduct that would constitute a felony or a Class A misdemeanor and is in a place where the person has a right to be has no duty to retreat before threatening or using force intended or likely to cause death or serious bodily injury if a the person has a reasonable belief that there is imminent danger of death, serious bodily injury, or grave sexual abuse and b the danger creating the belief is real or honestly believed to be real at the time and C, the belief of danger is founded upon reasonable grounds. So all three of those factors must be present and apply 
before a person would be justified in using lethal force against another. Section C provides additional protection to persons' residence, business, dwelling, or vehicle. Any person using force intended or likely to cause death or serious bodily injury within a residence, a business, a dwelling, or vehicle is presumed to have held a reasonable belief of imminent death or serious bodily injury to self, family, a member of the household, or a person visiting as an invited guest. When that force is used against another person who unlawfully and forcibly enters or has unlawfully and forcibly entered the residence, business, dwelling, or vehicle, and the person using defensive force knew or had reason to believe that the unlawful and forcible entry had occurred. So that means inside your home, your work, your barn, shed, storage building, covered porch, or even a tent and your car, it is presumed you would have a reasonable belief of imminent death or serious bodily injury to yourself or anyone else present with you in one of those places when you use the force against another person who has unlawfully and forcibly entered one of those locations. Understand, before force can be used, you or someone else must be present within one of those places before the presumption would apply. If I see somebody breaking into an outside shed or my vehicle, I would not be justified in taking out a hunting rifle and shooting the person from my porch. This, this presumption does not apply if the person the force used upon had a lawful right to be in or is a lawful resident of one of those places. This would include the owner, a lessee, a title holder, unless that person was prohibited by some type of valid court order. I don't have a presumption of fear against someone who has a legal right to be in one of those places. The presumption also does not apply if a person is attempting to remove their child, grandchild, or other person within their lawful custody or guardianship from one of those locations. I would not have that presumption of fear against a person who is removing their own child or their own grandchild or other person that they are responsible for. This presumption does not apply if the person using the force is engaged in a felony or Class A misdemeanor or is using the residence, business, dwelling, or occupied vehicle to further an unlawful activity. I can't engage in criminal activity or use one of those locations for the purpose of criminal activity and then claim the presumption. Finally, the presumption does not apply if the person against whom the force is used is a law enforcement officer entering that place in the performance of, their, of the officer's official duties. I can't claim this presumption against police officers lawfully doing their job. So who decides if self-defense applies? The judge determines if a person had a duty to retreat before they were justified in using force. The judge will also determine if the law on self-defense will be provided to a jury. However, once that determination has been made and if self-defense is fairly raised by the proof, and the judge decides to instruct the jury on the law of self-defense, then the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt to the jury that self-defense did not apply or the force used in self-defense was not justified. Thank you, listeners, and that would conclude this segment of What's the Law? 
Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website and Alexa or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Two powerful FM signals, one AM signal, and worldwide on WGNSRadio.com. You can listen to us anywhere. We are WGNS Murfreesboro. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Yes, we want to welcome everybody back to the broadcast. We have a special guest today, Detective Lieutenant James Abbott of the Murfreesboro Police Department. And Detective Abbott will tell us about missing persons. Detective Abbott, I turn the microphone over to you. Well, thank you. Good morning. Uh, you know, this is, we appreciate you having us on for this. Uh, believe it or not, missing persons cases here in the city of Murfreesboro is one of our, uh, we have quite a few cases uh, of individuals reported missing uh, yearly in the city uh in most cases uh we're glad to to be able to report most individuals are found very quickly after they've been reported missing uh sometimes within the same day that they were reported missing uh, we have a few cases that do go uh long term what we mean by that is maybe weeks or months uh, before there is a resolution uh, on average we receive about 12 to 15 missing persons reports a month um, and, and basically, like I said, these all missing persons cases are uh, different types of missing persons. Uh, some of them, uh, in, in many cases, are either uh, those who may be suicidal, uh, drug or alcohol, uh, some other type of mental health, or um, they may also be of suspicion, uh, maybe a reason for suspicion that, that why this individual went missing. We have just a, a ever so often, and, and I'm glad to say this, is, you know, we do have those missing persons cases that we suspect are cases of crime of violence. Uh, one that, that probably comes to mind for the city is the Marcelina Smith case, which was, was some years ago. Um, but in most cases, like I said, these cases often are not a, a crime um, but in fact, they have they have left for other reasons. I want to ask you a question about the missing persons and the types of them. Do we have any human trafficking problems? Do they do they sometimes get reported as missing persons? Uh, in in human trafficking cases like that, they're oftentimes may be reported as a missing juvenile. Uh, and so what we see is in those kind of cases is you may have a juvenile and those again those are those are uh, rare here in the city we're we're look we're fortunate in that that stance that those are rare cases uh, unfortunately I have to say though that a lot of the human trafficking cases the reason why the children are not reported missing is is they're often being trafficked by family members or loved ones and James, we also have with us in the studio today, uh, not only uh, Jenny Jones, but we also have Trevor Lynch. And they may have a question from time to time, but we'll let you know. But okay. I'm going to turn it back to you. Yes, sir. 
Um, so some of the things that, that I also like to – a lot of people have a misconception of. They watch TV or, or see movies and things is about a missing person case is that uh, individuals, uh, they think there's some sort of wait period or some type of wait, wait time. Uh, actually, in fact, if you do report someone missing, there is no period of wait time or anything of that nature. Um, if someone has gone missing and, and – you know, the next morning you realize they've not returned home, that loved one has not returned home, uh, you can report them missing. Now, we're going to assess that and determine if there's some type of risk. Uh, we'll do a risk assessment to determine if they do meet the criteria for being entered into the National Crime Information Center, NCIC, as a missing person. Uh, and so in those types of cases, what we will look at uh, is, does this person have some type of mental health issues, uh, medical issues? Uh, a lot of times, some of our people that we enter immediately into NCIC is missing. They may have some type of medical situation where they have to take medication um, periodically during the day at a set time. Uh, but, but maybe throughout the day, uh, they have to uh, take medication and they've left home without their medications. So these are things that we have to look at and assess, and, and once we've met that criteria, then we immediately enter them in CIC. So there is no, um, you know, come back and you wait, you know, come back in 48 hours or, or you know, three days or, or that type of situation. Uh, that's one of the, the misconceptions. Uh, another issue that we do have sometimes on the missing persons is uh, we do run into issues uh, where we have other agencies where the individual may have lived in another city or state and they have gone missing and their loved ones may call us uh, thinking, well, I need to report this to the police. Uh, I always stress that you need to contact the other agency um, that is where this person went missing from. Let's say that you have a missing person, let's say it's a juvenile, and you get a report from another state that says, we believe this juvenile is being kept uh, at such and such an address. What authority do you have to go to that address and what action can you take there? Well, we'll assess the information that the law enforcement agency has contacted us about. In most cases where an agency is going to do that, we're going to send a wealth, we're going to do a, a check to, to go through there. Uh, depending on the type of scenario as well, if it's a human trafficking situation, then we may call in. We have detectives that, are that, that work human trafficking in our agency. We also have our uh, special victims unit. So the, those individual detectives will most likely be assigned to do the follow-up. And so they're going to look into it. Uh, they're going to do a thorough job of looking into it and trying to determine whether or not they need to, if there's further investigation, whether or not um, as far as how to investigate it as well. Uh, and what I mean is we're not just going to go knock on the door and say, hey, is the child here? And the person say, no, they're not here. And, you know, and, and that's it. Um, you know, those detectives are going to go out, they're going to try to canvas the neighborhood, they're going to talk to other people and say, hey, have you seen this child uh, coming and going from that residence? Um, maybe look at even ring doorbell cameras in the area, or maybe try to try to get some other information, maybe even do surveillance, uh, just to ensure that that child is not there, if the child isn't. Lieutenant, you've told the listeners somewhat about some of the misconceptions we may have about how to respond to a missing person. For the parents out there, could you give them 
advice as to how they should handle a scenario when their juvenile may not come home from school when they were supposed to or didn't come home from a night out with friends when they were supposed to? What steps should they take? What are the first things they should do? Uh, one of the first things they should do, uh, number one, I mean, parents, <clears throat> excuse me, parents should, you know, first of all, uh, you hope that parents have a good, a good idea of who their friends are, who, the, who other people that they're going to associate with. Uh, because a lot of times, particularly with, with missing juveniles, we have found once the missing juvenile case comes in and we, we get it assigned to a detective uh, or even an officer that just goes out and takes the initial report, a lot of times it's just a matter of calling around to friends, maybe even other family members, and finding that juvenile. So it's one of those where, um, you know, it's always good to call police immediately uh, if you are concerned that this is unlike the child's normal behavior um, and, and begin that process of us entering the child. Um, you know, and, and so that is one of the, you know, things I always stress to folks is that, you know, start doing your due diligence and your own investigation as well, but contact the police also because we need to go ahead and start this process, particularly if there is uh, some other situation, uh, something that where this is more criminal than actually just, you know, a child that decided to go with a friend, you know, to the mall and forgot to call their mom or dad. Now, Lieutenant, is that a scenario where once a parent has that concern, that's immediately I'm calling 911, or would they call a non-emergency line? Uh, they could call either one. Uh, you know, that, that's one of those where you can call 911 or a non-emergency line. If you believe, if you, if you feel that, that that level of threat, particularly with a child, is missing, uh, you know, I encourage you call whatever line you can get uh, called. I mean, like I said, if you, don't, if you don't know the number right off the bat, call 911. Like I said, if, it's particularly if we think that the juvenile is missing uh, in a situation where this, this is a juvenile that's missing from a criminal act. Uh, again, Sometimes these cases, uh, like I said, you, we find a lot of times these juveniles, uh, particularly missing juveniles, uh, you know, are most of the time are, is a kid that is just a juvenile that has gone off with a friend or went to someone else's house and didn't, didn't bother to tell anyone. Is it illegal, Detective Abbott, uh, for someone to harbor a, a missing person or a runaway and, and I figure there's probably a distinction between those two is it not well when we talk about adults no it's it's not a crime to harbor somebody that I mean I'll be honest with you if an adult goes missing and you know a lot of times um, we start calling around when an adult goes missing uh, we'll start calling around to other family members friends hospitals uh, even uh, penal institutions, jails, uh, you know, I hate to say it, uh, there's a lot of times people will say, hey, my brother or, or my, my, my dad or my uncle or, or somebody or their adult child didn't come home last night. And, uh, and we start making phone calls, start looking up uh, records and things like that immediately once that report comes in. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, you find out they're, they're sitting over at uh, the Rutherford County Jail. Maybe they uh, had a night that they didn't want to call anybody, family or friends. Um, and, and, and the thing is, is when we get those kind of reports, we don't out those people. You know, we're not going to sit there and go, well, they're over, your, your loved one's over in the jail. We're not going to do that to somebody. Um, but, you know, we're just going to say, hey, can you pick up the phone and booking and please call your family and let them know you're safe. Um, 
and sometimes we find people that are in hospitals. Uh, COVID is one of those situations where we found several adults uh, in medical facilities because they'd gotten sick and started feeling sick. They went to the hospital, they went to a clinic, and then wound up being hospitalized because of COVID, and they didn't have a chance to tell family or friends what was happening at the time. And so we would find them at medical facilities. Uh, as far as juveniles go, if a juvenile is a runaway and we find that juvenile at someone's house, or residents, um, particularly if they're an adult, if they're another adult, they know that juvenile has ran away, they know that juvenile, that police are actively investigating that juvenile, then yes, we can charge that adult uh, for contributing to delinquency of a minor is one of the charges that we could charge them for. Um, and if there's, you know, sadly, uh, those, there are those cases where they are human trafficking also may be involved. And if that is also one of those cases as well, then, you know, even further investigate, you know, and, and anytime we find a juvenile in the presence, company of an adult, and that juvenile is a runaway, uh, and that person knowingly knows that juvenile is a runaway, we are going to investigate that further because that could be a situation of human trafficking. So, um, but some of the other things like we have talking about uh, real quick, I'd also like to mention some about silver alerts. Uh, as, ju as adults, we have a lot of our older loved ones, a lot of times they will have dementia and other medical problems and they may go missing. And so we have what is called a silver alert and we will issue a silver alert through the TBI. And one of the things that I want to stress before we go is just to tell folks to, to make sure they've got family members that may meet that criteria try to have their banking bank information phone information medical information and be able to provide that information to us if their loved one should go missing our special guest this morning on the action line has been detective lieutenant james abbott thank you james thank you as we end our program today we want to thank our special guest from the Murfreesboro Police Department, Detective Lieutenant James Abbott. We thank WGNS for providing the airtime. And we thank our producer, Scott Walker. Most of all, we thank you for listening. Our next scheduled broadcast is Friday morning, August the 5th at 8.10 a.m. on your good neighbor station, WGNS. We leave by saying, a safe community is the responsibility of each and every one of us. For my two co-hosts, Jennings Jones and Trevor Lynch, this is Paul Newman, bidding everyone a safe and blessed day. The District Attorney's Office thanks you for listening to today's program. If you have any information regarding criminal activity in our community, please contact one of our law enforcement agencies. The information presented on today's show is solely for informational benefit and not intended to be legal advice. You should always consult an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. Rutherford County's most trusted name in news. Talk Radio WGNS, Murfreesboro.